Our theme this morning is repentance. It is common for preachers to preach on repentance during the season of Lent, but I want to make something very clear uh, at the outset. Repentance is not just a seasonal thing for the Christian. We are to repent every day, 365 days a year for as long as we live. Repentance is not a sometimes thing, an every now and then kind of thing, a, a seasonal thing. It is to be a daily habit for the Christian. We sin daily, and so we need to repent daily. We need to understand what repentance is because it is such a central feature of the Christian life. This turning from our sin, this turning towards God, this confessing of our sin and claiming God's mercy, that's really the rhythm, the pattern of the Christian life. Repentance is a way of life for the Christian. Uh, Matthew Henry, the famous Bible commentator put it this way. He said, some people do not like to hear much of repentance, but I think it is so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I would desire to die preaching repentance. And if out of the pulpit, I would desire to die practicing it. He said, I want to die either preaching repentance or practicing repentance. Uh, his father, Philip Henry, who was also a pastor, said he wanted to carry his repentance right up to the gates of heaven. Repentance is not just how we enter the way of salvation. It is the way of salvation. It is the pathway we must travel to glory. It is right at the heart of the Christian life. Martin Luther understood this. The first of his 95 theses that sparked the Reformation in the 16th century declared, when Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. The entire life of the believer is to be a life of repentance. Repentance is a gift of God's grace that turns us from our sin. Repentance is declaring war on your sin. Repentance is nothing less than the Christian way of life. Those who repent will see their sin for what it is. How sin brought death into the world. Sin put Jesus on the cross. Sin leads to eternal death. Repentance is turning from that sin, turning from death, and it's turning towards God, the God who is life and who gives life. If you want to end up on the right side of history, you need to be on the right side of God and God's law. And the way to get on the right side of God and God's law is through repentance. Repentance realigns us with God's design for human life. It's like throwing a, a fish back in the water. When we sin, we're like a fish out of water. We're not doing what we were made to do. When we repent, we're like that fish being thrown back into the water. If you want to thrive, if you want to experience joy, repentance is the way. Indeed, the basic divide in the human race the basic antithesis within the human race is between those who repent and those who do not. You can have a man who has raped and pillaged his whole life, but if he repents on death row or on his deathbed, he will enter into glory when he dies. And you can have a straight-laced conservative culture warrior who's got all the right views and opinions on the issues of the day, but if he does not personally repent of his sin, he will spend all eternity separated from God. That's what repentance means. That's how central it is. The reality is scripture calls us to repent on almost every single page. Uh, many of the stories in the historical parts of the Bible are written in part to show us that we should repent or to show us what will happen if we don't repent. 
The prophet's message to Israel is continually one of repentance. The prophets are constantly calling on Israel and the nations to repent. John the Baptist and Jesus both began their ministries calling on people to repent. They began their public ministries declaring, repent. And the apostles in their preaching and in their epistles also call for repentance again and again and again. Here are some examples. Joel chapter 2, we read it this morning. Now therefore says the Lord, turn, or repent. Now therefore says the Lord, repent with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. We see here that repentance includes brokenness over our sin, and that brokenness can be expressed in ritualized and public ways, fasting and and weeping. Psalm 7 Verse 12, if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, his bow. Judgment will fall, the psalmist is saying, on those who refuse to repent. God is ready to judge all who refuse repentance. Ezekiel 14, 6, therefore says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and abominations. Repentance means turning away from our idols and turning towards the living God. The prophet Jonah announced judgment would fall on the city of Nineveh in 40 days. And in Jonah 3.10, what do we find? The people following their king repented of their evil ways, and so the Lord relented. And I think that story shows us that repentance is, yes, necessary to salvation. It shows us when we repent, God relents, that God might threaten terrible things. But when we repent, God will relent and show us mercy. John the Baptist called on those who came to receive his baptism in Luke 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, he said, prove your repentance with your deeds. Prove your repentance by living a changed life. Repentance is fruitful. Repentance is transformative. John the Baptist, of course, prepared the way for the Messiah. And then the first words of Jesus in his public ministry in Matthew 4 are these, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First words out of Jesus' mouth there, repent. He says to all those who would become his disciples, transfer your loyalty to me and to the kingdom I am inaugurating. In Luke 5, verse 32, he describes his purpose for coming into the world this way. He says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Those who are righteous think they have no need of repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus' mission is to gather together a family, a community of repentant sinners. In Luke 13, we read it this morning, we see Jesus himself as a kind of fire and brimstone preacher. Uh, There in Luke 13, we read about some revolutionary Jews who were slaughtered by Pilate, who then mingled their blood with the sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus uses this as a warning. He says, don't think just because something terrible happened to them and not to you, that therefore you deserve better. Unless you repent, unless you repent of your revolutionary mindset, you will likewise perish. You'll perish in the same way at the hands of Roman soldiers. That's Jesus' warning to his generation. Then Jesus goes on to talk about a tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. Whereas the... the, the, uh, attack by pilot soldiers on the Jews might have seemed to be deserved because they were revolutionaries, they were bandits. This seems to be just a, a random tragedy. 
Jesus asked, do you think that they were worse offenders than others in Jerusalem? Those who had the tower fall on them, were they worse sinners than others who didn't have a tower fall on them? No, Jesus says, but unless you repent, you will also perish. I think the point Jesus is making with those two stories in Luke 13 is this. If you go through some terrible tragedy, you need to repent. But if you don't go through a terrible tragedy, if you are spared the tragedies that befall others, you still need to repent. Repent is all, repentance is always in season. Whether bad things are happening to you or good things are happening to you, you need to repent. Jesus says to everyone in every circumstance, repent or perish. If good things happen, repent. If bad things happen, repent. It's always a good time to repent. Repentance is always fitting. The Great Commission includes the preaching of repentance. In Luke 24, Luke's version of the Great Commission, Jesus says, repentance and the remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Jesus says there's no preaching of the gospel without repentance, without the preaching of repentance. This must be preached. And actually, when you look at the book of Acts then, you see the apostles carrying out this task. The apostles are constantly preaching repentance. Whether the audience is Jew or Gentile, repentance is the theme. Every sermon calls for a response. Every sermon, every good sermon is going to call on you to do something. That something must include repentance. And we see that with the preaching of the apostles. Consider the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has just been poured out. Peter declares the gospel to those who are gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. He tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He says, God sent you this man, attested by his miraculous works, and you nailed him to the cross. But God did not abandon his Holy One to decay. No, in fulfillment of the old covenant prophecies and promises, God raised him up and has exalted him, and he is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And then the people cry out and say, what must we do then to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's new covenant preaching. Repentance is still demanded. Repentance is a necessary response to the gospel. When people hear the gospel and say, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent. Change your ways. Turn from sin towards God. Turn away from your idols and towards the living God. In Acts chapter 5, Peter's on trial and he says this, God has exalted Jesus to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. What does the ascended Christ do as Christ reigns over all things? What does he do? He gives repentance to his people. He works repentance in our hearts. He showers us with this gift of repentance from above. Repentance is like a gift coming down from, from heaven above. That Jesus works in us that we could become his faithful disciples. Repentance is a gift of King Jesus. Paul, of course, preached repentance as well. In Acts chapter 17, as he is preaching to the pagan philosophers in the Areopagus, at the end of his sermon, after announcing how God has revealed himself and how God will judge all men, he says, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. You can't make it any more simple than that. God commands all men everywhere to repent. 
In Acts chapter 20, Paul summarizes his ministry among the Ephesians this way. He says he's testified to the Jews and Gentiles that they must repent and turn to God and trust in the Lord Jesus. There you see that repentance and faith are inseparable. You can't turn towards Jesus in faith without turning away from your idols. Repentance and faith go together. And Paul could summarize his whole message, his whole ministry, by saying, I declared repentance. Repentance towards God and, and, and faith towards Jesus. In Acts chapter 26, as Paul is standing trial before Agrippa, he tells his story. He gives his testimony, how he persecuted the church. And then Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light as he was going to Damascus and how he has obeyed that heavenly vision. He says, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. And what does that mean? He goes on to explain, it means he has declared to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and in all of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. It is a message of repentance, a gospel of repentance. That's Paul's preaching. If there's any doubt, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is patient towards us, patient towards us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, the Lord often seems slow to, to judge, slow to anger. Sometimes we wonder why God's taking so long to do something about evil in the world around us. Well, Peter here explains that the Lord often seems slow in bringing well-deserved judgments on people in history. Why? Why is that? Because he desires for people to repent. And he will wait patiently for people to repent. I would suggest to you, he's waiting patiently on America to repent right now. He would rather have us repent than undergo his judgment. He's a long-suffering God. But he's not going to wait forever. Judgment does eventually fall. The only way to escape that judgment is through repentance. And remember, too, it's not just unbelievers who need to hear about repentance. The church needs to repent as well. We are always in need of repentance. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, through John, addresses seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And in those letters, there are several calls to repent, including this in Revelation 2, 6, addressed to the church in Ephesus. Remember from where you have fallen. This is a backsliding church. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent, Jesus says, and do the works you did at the first, or I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus threatens terrible things to churches that will not practice ongoing repentance. He's got similar words for the church at Pergamos. Repent or else. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Now, who wants Jesus to come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth? Would you want that? No. Well, how do you avoid that? Repent. But it's not just threats that lead us to repentance. Paul explains in Romans chapter 2 that the riches of God's kindness are meant to lead us to repentance as well. God is kind to us that in his kindness, he might draw us towards repentance. And of course, God's kindness is seen in all kinds of ways. Sometimes that kindness comes in the form of abundant blessings. Again, if God is being good to you, repent and keep on repenting. 
But sometimes God dis- disguises his kindness. Hardship and trial can actually be the kindnesses of God disguised, but nevertheless designed to lead us to repentance. God can put us through hardships and trials, and in doing so, he is disguising his kindness, but it's still his kindness, and these kindnesses are designed to lead us to repentance. God's fatherly discipline in our lives can be a kindness designed to lead us to repentance. Think about when David had sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan comes to him, Nathan the prophet, and Nathan confronts him and and basically catches David in a trap by telling David a story. And in doing so, he exposes David's sin to him. That was hard for David to take, no doubt. But that was the Lord's kindness to him. God was kindly exposing David's sin. It was kind of God to catch him in it so he could repent. The letter of 1 Corinthians works this way as well. And this is really a lead-in to the passage in 2 Corinthians we read because in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul's pointing back to the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. The letter of 1 Corinthians really works this way as well. 1 Corinthians is not a letter you'd want to get. It's not a letter you would want your church to receive. It is highly corrective. Uh, Paul, in that letter, points out many serious flaws in the church, in the way they live, in how they worship, in what they believe. It was a stinging letter, a letter full of stinging rebukes. And I'm sure that there were some hurt feelings when the letter was read in the congregation. But you know what? It was effective. Paul wounded in order that he might heal. Because when we read 2 Corinthians, we find that the Corinthian church has been repentant. They took Paul's words in the first letter to heart, and they repented. One particular church member is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5, we learn of a man who is engaged in deep sexual perversion. And Paul says, you should have already disciplined this man. You should have already expelled this man from the church. And so when you come together, expel this man, hand this man over to Satan. And when we read 2 Corinthians, we find that the church has responded well to Paul's first letter, and they have indeed carried out the kind of discipline, they have made the kinds of reforms that Paul talked about in his first letter. They have repented. They've made course corrections. They've heeded Paul's words. They've carried out the church discipline Paul wanted them to. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he says, if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I do regret it. He regrets that he had to write such a letter, but he's glad that he did. His letter made them sorry, but only for a while. I think Paul's view here is much like parents who do not enjoy disciplining children, but they do it because they love their child. And so there's temporary sorrow on the part of the parent and on the part of the child, so they can both enter into a greater joy on the other side of the discipline. That's really what Paul is saying here. Paul is sorry that he had to cause them sorrow, but he's happy with the result. His sorrow has now been replaced with joy. And verse 9 explains why. Their sorrow led to repentance. The sorrow caused by Paul's letter led them to repentance, and that was Paul's goal. They were sorry in a godly manner, and godly sorrow leads to godliness. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to transformation. It leads to life change. To further explain what this means, Paul contrasts godly sorrow with worldly sorrow 
in verse 10. And we need to understand this. There is such a thing as worldly sorrow, a kind of worldly remorse, even a kind of worldly repentance. But it does not lead to godliness. It does not lead to salvation. It does not produce fruit. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow does not. There are many people who are sorrowful over their behavior, over their consequences. Maybe sorry because they got caught. But it does not lead them to actually repent. Godly sorrow does. Godly sorrow leads to real change, a change of mind and heart, leading to a change of action, a change of life. In fact, Paul describes in detail the process the Corinthians went through in verse 11. Their godly sorrow produced seven results, a sevenfold result flowing out of their godly sorrow. It produced diligence. They were earnest, they were sincere, they were active in pursuing correction, in fixing what needed to be fixed. It produced in them a desire to clear themselves, not in the sense of defending themselves against Paul's accusations, but in the sense of acknowledging those accusations and then working to set things right in the face of the accusations, in the face of the charges that had been brought against them. It produced indignation. They were frustrated with themselves, indignant with themselves, with their community. And so they were determined to do something about it. It produced fear, fear of God, fear of Paul as God's spokesman, fear of judgment. Their fear of God drove out their other fears. Why hadn't they done the church discipline already before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians? Probably because of the fear of man. And Paul says, now you fear God, and the fear of God has driven out the fear of man. You can do the right thing because you fear God. It produced in them vehemence, zeal, and ultimately vindication. They wanted justice to be done. They wanted God's reputation, which is always tied to his church. They wanted God's reputation defended and vindicated through them. Paul in verse 11 is really giving a great summary of what godly sorrow does in our lives the results, the effects it produces. Worldly sorrow leads only to death. It ultimately culminates in the weeping and gnashing of teeth that Jesus described. But by contrast, godly sorrow leads to life and salvation and joy. And this is because godly sorrow leads to repentance. It drives us to God. It drives us to obedience. It is deeply transformative. Worldly sorrow is centered on the self. The self is still the central point. The self is the central point when we sin, of course. We sin because we want to please ourselves. But self is still at the center when there is worldly sorrow. So worldly sorrow might produce self-pity or even self-flagellation, but it's still all about the self. By contrast, godly sorrow is God-centered. It's god Focused, it's moving towards God. Towards the God we have offended, but it's moving towards God. I want to really focus on this contrast between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow because it's so important, so important to understand this. Again, think about this. Worldly sorrow leads to death because it does not lead to change. So worldly sorrow really is a dead end. Those with worldly sorrow might regret what they've done. They might be ashamed of it. They might feel guilty, but that does them no good in the end. And by contrast, godly sorrow produces a changed life. It does do us good. 
We need to ask, how can we be sure that we have had godly sorrow and therefore true repentance in our lives? And to really get at this, I think we need to dig a little deeper. What really makes godly sorrow and real repentance possible? You need to listen, because if you don't get this, you will all too easily take everything I'm saying about repentance, everything Scripture says about repentance, as bad news. It will seem like the requirement to repent is heavy and oppressive and discouraging. It's going to leave you miserable and despairing if you do not get this. The key, the real key to true repentance is not only seeing the heinousness of your sin, it is also seeing the beauty of God's mercy, which really means seeing the beauty of Jesus himself. You have to see the heinousness of your sin, but you also have to see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of God's mercy in Christ. I think a good illustration of the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow can be found in the examples of Peter and Judas. Just compare Peter and Judas and 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 how things work out for them in the Gospels. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. They both committed very serious sins against Jesus. They both fell into deep sin. And they both felt terrible about what they had done. But what happens next? What do they do with their sorrow? Well, one killed himself. The other recovered to become a bold and joyful apostle. What made the difference? Why did Judas take his own life, whereas Peter began to live a new life? Well, Judas, I think, did come to hate his sin in a certain way. He certainly regretted what he had done. He hated his sin, but he did not love Jesus. And so he did not seek Jesus out. He saw how ugly his sin was, but he did not see the beauty of God's mercy in Christ. Judas could have been forgiven. Think about that. Judas could have been forgiven. Mercy was there for him, there for the taking, but he never embraced God's mercy by going to Jesus. Peter also hated his sin. He hated the fact he had denied Jesus three times. He was deeply ashamed of it, embarrassed by this, but he had more than sorrow and grief over it. What does he do? He seeks out Jesus. He seeks out his mercy, and so he's restored. Not just restored, but he's really, he's glorified. He's strengthened. He's built up. That's a very important difference. I think one of the the best illustrations I know of of worldly sorrow leading to death uh, is in the life of Mark Twain. Uh, So let me me unfold this because I think this is really, really interesting and can help us understand this. Twain was undoubtedly one of the greatest authors America has ever produced. Uh, Certainly he's the funniest author America has ever produced. He had a Presbyterian background. He was raised at least in a nominally Presbyterian home, but he ended up an atheist, deeply cynical about God, religion, and really all of life, you might say. Twain's deep distrust of religion comes to clearest expression when in his autobiography he describes his personal battles over repentance. And what you see as you read his own account is he's very mistaken in his understanding of the gospel and what repentance really is. So in his autobiography, he talks about various tragedies that happened all around him as he was a boy growing up in his hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. And he understood these tragedies as events in God's providence. Remember, he was from a Presbyterian home. He understood these tragic events as God's 
providences in which God was trying to get his attention to turn him away from his sin and towards a better life. And as he describes it, he did have a kind of sorrow in his life. But repenting for Twain was always a miserable business because he never had any sense of God's goodness or God's mercy. He could see his sin, but he could not see the beauty of Christ. And so actually he began to have nightmares about repentance. One time an elderly man named Smar got shot in Hannibal. And this man was dying, and there was no way to save him. So the young Twain went with the others in the town to pay their last respects to this man as he lay near death on his bed at home. And listen to how Twain describes this scene, and you'll get a sense for how oppressive he views the Bible and its demand to repent. He says, The shooting down of poor old Smar in the main street at noonday supplied me with some more dreams. And in them I always saw again the grotesque closing picture of that great family Bible spread open on the profane old man's breast by some thoughtful idiot, and that Bible rising and sinking with his labored breathings and adding the torture of its leaden weight to his dying struggles. In all the throng of gaping onlookers, there was not one with common sense enough to proceed that an anvil would have been in better taste there than the Bible. In my nightmares, I gasped and struggled for breath under the crush of that vast book for many a night. Twain had this, this, this image in his dreams, which came from seeing this old man, Smar, die, lying there with the family Bible on his chest, trying to breathe under its weight. And Twain says, we might as well put an anvil on his chest. That's what the Bible is like. It's demand to repent. It's like a leaden weight crushing out whatever life we have in us. Twain goes on, he says, All within the space of a couple of years, we had two or three other tragedies, and I had the ill luck to be nearby on each occasion. There was the slave man who was struck down with a chunk of slag for some small offense. I saw him die. And the young California immigrant who was stabbed with a knife by a drunken comrade, I saw the red light gush from him. And the case of the rowdy young Hyde brothers and their harmless old uncle, one of them held the old man down with his knees on his breast while the other tried repeatedly to kill him with an Allen revolver which wouldn't go off. I happened along just then, of course, just in time to see them trying to shoot this man. Now, we could talk about how horrible it is, really, that as a young man, Twain had to witness these tragedies. But the question here for us is this. How did Twain interpret these events? How did he respond to them? This is what he writes. My teaching and training, so remember he at least had a nominal Presbyterian background. My teaching and training enabled me to see deeper into these tragedies than an ignorant person may have done. I knew what they were for. I tried to disguise it from myself, but down in the secret depths of my heart, I knew, and I knew that I knew. They were the inventions of providence to beguile me to a better life. Twain says, God made these horrible things happen all around me in order to scare me into repenting, in order to trick me into amending my ways and living a better life. For Twain, there's no sense of God's mercy. It's only a fear of punishment and a cruel providence that would motivate somebody to repentance. That's why God's striking down all these people around him. It's to get his attention. 
At one point, Twain asks God if he's really worth the trouble. Though, of course, he figures that he was. Uh, Twain was not exactly a model of humility. That's how he explains it. He says, it's quite true. I took all these tragedies to myself and tallied them off in turn as they happened, saying to myself in each case with a sigh, another one gone and on my account. This ought to be enough to bring me to repentance. God's just striking these people dead in Hannibal, Missouri to get Twain's attention. That's how Twain sees it. But what's interesting to me is he goes on and describes his attempts to repent in light of these tragedies. Listen to what he says. With the going down of the sun, clammy fears gathered about my heart. It was then that I repented. Those were awful nights, nights of despair, nights charged with the bitterness of death. After each tragedy, I recognized the warning and repented, repented and begged, begged like a coward, begged like a dog. My repentances were very real and very earnest, and after each tragedy, they happened every night for a long time, but as a rule, they could not stay in the daylight. They faded out and shredded away and disappeared in the glad splendor of the sun. They, that is, my repentances, were the creatures of fear and darkness, and they could not live out of their own place. The day gave me cheer and peace, and at night I repented again. In all my boyhood life, I'm not sure that I ever tried to lead a better life in the daytime or wanted to. In my old age, he's writing this now as an old man, in my age, I should never think of wishing to do such a thing. But in my age, as in my youth, night brings me many a deep remorse. I realize that from the cradle up, I've been like the rest of the human race, never quite sane in the night. What is Twain saying? Can you relate to that experience? Are there times when you lie down to go to bed at night and you start thinking back over some of the wrongs you've done during the day and you start to hate yourself for it and you're overcome with those kind of clammy fears that Twain talks about and you start to repent and beg, beg like a coward, beg like a dog. That was Twain's experience. I think there's many people that have had that experience. That at night, the the sins of the day come rushing back upon them. And they don't know what to do with that guilt, with that shame. Twain describes being crushed with the weight of his own sin, and he saw no way out. And so he had nightmares about repentance. He describes trying to repent as a raging hell he must pass through. But because his repentances were mere worldly sorrow, because they were creatures of fear and regret, they could not stand the light of day. Yes, he would repent at night in the dark, but as soon as he got up the next morning, he went out and committed the exact same sins all over again. Now I ask you, what was missing from Twain's so-called repentances? What was missing from these acts of repentance, these these nights of, 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 of tormented repentance? What's missing? He had a sense of his sin, but he had no sense of God's mercy. It's the mercy that makes the difference. In the Book of Common Prayer, there's a wonderful line that ever since I first heard it, it has really stuck with me, and I want it to stick with you as well. It's from one of Thomas Cranmer's colleagues. Thomas Cranmer was such a, a master of the English language and, of course, also a master of reformational 
theology. And in one of his colleagues, he uses these words. He says, in one of the prayers, he says, you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. You are the Lord whose property is always to have mercy. It's always your property, God, to show mercy. I think Cranmer is probably drawing from Micah 7.18 and passages like it. Micah 7.18 says, There is no other God like you who pardons iniquity and transgression, who does not stay angry forever, but who delights in mercy. It is always God's property to have mercy. And that's what you need to know. That's what you must Remember, when you confess your sin, you are confessing to a God whose property is always to have mercy. There is no other God like this, a God who delights in showing mercy to his people. You cannot out the grace of God. He delights in showing mercy to all who turn to him. It is always his property to have mercy. The abominations you have committed do not matter to him. He stands more ready to forgive you than you are ready to be forgiven. He delights in forgiving your sin. There is no other God like this. His mercy is like an infinite ocean with no top, no bottom, no shore, stretching out forever. An endless sea of mercy. It just goes on and on and on, further than you can see, further than you can imagine. And God in His mercy befriends sinners, He fellowships with sinners, He forgives sinners, He feasts with sinners. Yes, even at His own table. So you know what? Don't let your sin get you down. Don't let guilt drag you down. Don't become like Mark Twain, cynical and despairing, unable to have your repentance stand the light of day because your repentance is nothing more than a creature of fear rather than a creature of mercy. Do not see repentance as bad news. See it as good news. And it's good news not just because repentance says you can do better. It's good news because repentance says you have a merciful God. See that word repentance in the Bible as a hopeful word. It doesn't just mean try harder or do better. It means God's mercy is yours. You are turning towards a God whose property is to always have mercy. Do not settle for mere regret or remorse because that won't change you. It won't restore you. It won't deal with the pangs of a guilty conscience. It will not bring you forgiveness. No, when you repent, your repentance is not complete unless you have embraced God's mercy and you know that you are forgiven. That's why every Sunday when we confess our sins, we follow that with a word of absolution. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And so what do you do when you sin? What should you do when you sin? Don't walk, but run. Run to God. Run to Christ's cross. Turn to him. Give him all your baggage. Give him all your guilt. Give him all your shame. God can handle it. God sent his son into the world to deal with all of that. So when you sin, you can know you have a merciful and forgiving Savior. And when you see his mercy, then repentance is not something to have nightmares about. 
No, repentance becomes a joy. It's not a burden. It's a release. And like David in Psalm 32, you come to see confessing your sin as therapeutic and transformative. Repentance means you don't have to lug around a thousand pounds worth of sin and guilt everywhere you go. You don't have to carry that big pack of of guilt on your back anymore. You can just let it go. God says, I've got it. I've got it covered. I'll take care of it. When you confess your sin, you are turning away from your sin, yes. But when you turn away from your sin, what are you now facing? In your repentance, you come face to face with the God whose property is to always have mercy. Repentance moves you closer to this God. Every time you repent, you're getting closer and closer to this God. Remember, when you confess your sin, when you repent, you are turning towards the God whose property is to always have mercy. Let me close this. Go back to to Mark Twain. The real tragedy of Twain's life, I think, is that he had an opportunity to learn the truth. If only his Presbyterian pastor and parents had taught him Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 87, maybe he would have gotten this. Because the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And it does not say that repentance is groveling. It does not say that repentance is begging like a coward or like a dog. It does not say that repentance is like a heavy Bible or even an anvil weighing down on your chest, crushing the breath out of you. No, it says this. Repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ with grief and hatred of his sin, turns from it to God, purposing and endeavoring after new obedience. What is the catechism teaching? It it summarizes this biblical doctrine so well. What is the catechism teaching? You will never hate your sin and you will never purpose after new obedience unless and until you apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Only one thing can drive out your desire for sin and that is a desire for Christ. But you're only going to desire Christ if you see the beauty of his mercy. Twain didn't get this. And that's why Twain said, I, I never led a better life in the daytime. And now as an old man, I wouldn't even think about trying. He refused to apprehend the mercy of God offered in Christ. But you've got to understand what this means for you so you don't make the same mistake. You have not really repented until and unless you have grabbed hold of God's mercy to you in Christ. Repentance is a saving grace. Repentance is grounded in God's grace. It's rooted in God's mercy. Repentance is not just mourning over your sin. Repentance is not complete until mourning has turned into dancing, until grief has been replaced by joy. Repentance is never complete until contrition has given way to confidence in the grace of God. Why should you repent? Why should you turn turn from your sin? Because when you turn from your sin, you're turning towards a God whose property is to always have mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.